Religion has profoundly influenced the sweeping American narrative, perhaps more than any other force in our history, from the time before European colonization to the present. The startup National Museum of American Religion is working to build a museum in the nation's capital that will share the story of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, inviting all to explore the role of religion in shaping the social, political, economic, and cultural lives of Americans and thus America itself. Join our host, Chris Stevenson, for season two of our podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, as we follow scholars deep into America's religious history and learn how it can inform and animate us as citizens grappling with complex questions of governance and American purpose in the 21st century. Episodes will be released every Monday on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Register for notifications on our website, www.storyofamericanreligion.org, under the sign-up tab. We are here with three guests who are involved in the private nonprofit startup National Museum of American Religion, the producer of this podcast, to talk about the what, why, and how of the National Museum of American Religion project. Rob Wilson Black is the CEO of Sojourners and co-founder of the National Museum of American Religion. He has his PhD from the University of Chicago under Martin E. Marty and attended the University of Richmond as an undergrad. In 2017, Rob was awarded an honorary doctorate from Franklin College in Indiana for his work as a, quote, scholar, leader, and advocate for religion, close quote. He has given talks on campuses throughout the world, including Duke, UC Berkeley, Georgetown, Princeton, the University of Cape Town, the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome, and at the World Economic Forum. Tammy J. Snyder is a professor of religion at Claremont Graduate University and is a founding member of the Board of Directors of the National Museum of American Religion. Her research draws together the varied fields of archaeology, Assyriology, and biblical studies in an effort to understand the ancient Near East, especially the interactions among various peoples. She teaches ancient Near Eastern history, literature, archaeology, and religion, and women in the Hebrew Bible. Schneider received her Ph.D. in ancient history from the University of Pennsylvania. Throughout her career, Schneider has taught and lectured at the University of Minnesota, University of Pennsylvania, Graz College, University of Judaism, and CGU. In addition to teaching, Schneider also has professional excavation and museum experience. She has written several books and has worked on numerous archaeological excavations in Israel. Roger Finke is Professor of Sociology and Religious Studies at the Pennsylvania State University and a founding member of the Advisory Board of the National Museum of American Religion. He earned his doctorate in sociology at the University of Washington. Mr. Finke was the founding director of the American Religion Data Archive, which was renamed as the Association of Religious, Religion Data Archives, or ARDA, in 2006, which is supported by the Lilly Endowment and the John Templeton Foundation. The ARDA provides free data on American and international religion, along with tools and resources to assist educators, journalists, religious congregations, and researchers. He has co-authored two books with sociologist of religion Rodney Stark, The Churching of America, 1776 to 1990, Winners and Losers in Our Religious Economy, and Acts of Faith, Explain the Human Side of Religion. Thank you all for being here. 
I'd like to read the mission statement from the official master planning study guide study published by the renowned museum planning firm Gallagher and Associates. The National Museum of American Religion explores the impact of religion on America and America on religion. Committed to honesty and inclusivity, it tells stories of individuals, institutions, and movements that have formed the distinctive religious history of our nation. The museum invites all people to discover how the ideal of religious freedom, as expressed in the Constitution and experienced by people throughout United States history, has shaped our social, political, economic, and cultural lives from the period before European colonization to the present day. Rob, what might a better understanding of, quote, the impact of religion on America and America on religion do to me as an American and to America itself? First, thanks, Chris, for having us on. Um, that's a fascinating question that we don't know the answer to yet because the museum doesn't exist, but I hope after people would walk through this museum and appreciate its institutes and its public outreach and its attending to the issues of the day, you might have a sense of context for why the religious freedom, uh, as contested as it is, is important, whether you have a particular belief or not. Uh, you might get a richer sense of why it matters that you want to help out the rest of America, whether you are a believer uh, in a particular faith or not to have that uh, opportunity. You would also get a sense of the historical contestedness uh, of religious freedom. And so that when you're able to listen to a Supreme Court a ruling or have an argument with your neighbor or uh, are on a city council of uh, considering a new mosque being built, you would have a sense of the history of it. Oh, Muslims have been here longer than my family's been here, a couple hundred years. Oh, um, here are the consequences of allowing a group that I would disagree with to, to practice because of course they might disagree with me um, and a place for my children to pull up in their uh, yellow school bus to learn a little bit more of their history in a way that they haven't been able to uh, by going to a Smithsonian or a different take uh, had they gone to the Museum of the Bible or the Creation Museum. Um, so hopefully it would allow those kind of uh, moments for you to imagine what it's gonna look like for the next hundred years to ostensibly live together uh, uh, as Americans, and of course, trying to export the best version of religious freedom to our international uh, friends as well. Thank you, Rob. Uh, Tammy or, or Roger, anything to add to that? Uh, it's a good answer. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and I think what Rob said is very important too, that it's it's been contested, I mean, throughout history, but when it was first founded, it was considered a very radical notion. I mean, first radical in the sense that organized religion could even survive without the support of the state. And then also radical that you would allow Catholics and Jews and then all of these you know, heretics to exist in the same country. So I think all of those notions were far more radical than people often believe. And when we look at things occurring today, we can see that some of the same debates occurred you know, many times over in history. And I think that helps everything, uh, both to see the importance of it, but to put it in perspective as well. Thanks, Roger. Can I jump in now as well? Sure. Um, one of the parts that um, I think um, Rob addressed a little bit less is he, um, both of you looked at the, um, the impact that um, freedom of religion had on us, but it has also impacted the religions that come here, right? Which is all of them pretty much. Um, and that notion that 
being in a context where, regardless of whether you're the majority religion or the minority religion, where you're allowed to function within the society without um, onerous strictures, as has been the case for most minority religions elsewhere throughout the history of time. And that what that allows one's religion to do is kind of interesting. And so most religions, when they hit these shores, because of that, that notion of freedom of religion, change, I don't want to say radically, but I think it is somewhat radically, right? And we tend to think of, well, our religion hasn't changed, but every religion has changed pretty radically in the last two, four, 500 years, um, and um, regardless of where. But in particular, what happens to these religions when they hit these shores, right? And in the, uh, the context where you can freely exchange with others, um, that makes one view even what one's own religion is, uh, it makes it look a little bit different. And it's kind of exciting to see how these religions ebb and flow um, once they come here and then how they get exported back to either the home country, the old country, or even countries where those religions really hadn't been previously. Yeah. Yeah. Roger. Go ahead, Roger. Yeah. One example I'd offer that was I talking to an imam in Dearborn. And one of the things he expressed the greatest appreciation for was when uh, they wanted to rent some space in a local strip mall. And uh, the people of the strip mall did not want to rent to them. And it was the clergy of the community who came to his defense and says, you know, your freedoms are our freedoms. And they would defend him. He was very impressed by that. But then also, as I toured the facility to get to your point of how it changes the, the, the way they worship, is he showed me the kitchen. He showed me all these other facilities. And I said, well, did you have these in the old country? And he said, well, no, of course not. And I said, well, why? And he said, well, you know, there we were the religion. Here we have to form a community, you know. And it's been the same story for, for Catholics, Jews, each group when they come here, that they worship in a very different way once they come to these shores. That reminds me of a couple of weeks before the so-called 9-11 mosque controversy, uh, where uh, Daisy Khan and Faisal Roth uh, uh, married couple and moms uh, were getting ready to work on a community center. I was talking with them before the, any kind of a controversy broke in New York. And the main things that we were discussing were stroller space for the children's strollers and fundraising for that uh, Muslim community center. Um, alas, the, the banal and the regular uh, meet up. And um, having grown up fundamentalist Baptist in Virginia, we were very happy to uh, practice religion freely, but our concern was the relativizing of our religion when we were put in the marketplace. Uh, what do you mean we're just one other story amongst others? In short, we were very pleased about it, being able to practice our faith freely. Although as Baptists in Virginia, we had a couple of stories about Baptist uh, ministers being thrown in jail, but we, we were concerned about the relativizing. Uh, and we were also generally happy about our own freedom to practice, not as happy for others with whom we disagreed to practice, as is the American story, which Roger and Tammy were pointing out. Great, yeah, those are those are fantastic comments. Uh, before we leave this particular statement, uh, Roger, uh, how uh, how influential has religion, uh, undergirded by this ideal of religious freedom, been on United States history? Can you give us a sense of that? Yeah, well, I, I think it's it's really reshaped the whole landscape of American religion. Um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, one of the great fears was what's going to happen when all these religions have the freedom to exist. And um, it resulted in just this plethora of, 
of new religious movements arising. And it was the Baptists, the Methodists, who actually grew the quickest because they adapted very quickly to this uh, congregational form of, of really uh, uh, being aggressive in the way they reached out to people. So I think it's really reshaped the way religion operates in that regard, but it's also shaped the, the way, as we mentioned earlier, Tammy was talking about the way the congregations form, because now they're completely dependent upon the membership to support them. They can't rely on the state to support them. And it makes for a very different relationship at the local level too. Uh, so you, you really have a higher level of involvement by the, the people. Uh, so, and then on top of all of that, something that I think is too often forgotten now is um, the way it's really shaped a lot of the major social changes in American religious history as well too. Um, as you know, one of the areas in the art that we're trying to do is provide more educational tools because such major things as women's suffrage or civil rights or prohibition. Um, when I talk to students now about uh, how religion influenced that, they would say they don't know, you know, because it's not a part of the education um, and it's just not a part of the curriculum. And for understandable reasons, schools are very hesitant to address it. But that also means that we have an incomplete understanding of our history. Um, so I think there's all these different ways that freedom shaped religion but there's all these different ways that the freedom of religion shaped as far as social changes, which, which resulted. Um, and, and again, if you go back to civil rights, uh, one of the things that was very clear was African-Americans had one institution that they could still take the leadership role. So it's no accident that when civil rights came, the leaders came out of congregations because that's where you have these institutional leaders, both motivated by the religious message, but also already in a leadership role in the African-American community. So I think there's so many different things um, that we don't fully appreciate on, on how religion was a part of these changes. Great, thank you. Um, so in this, in this one statement, the, the phrase is used, ideal of religious freedom. Can, can one of you give us a, a definition of that? I will, since I come from a minority religion, right? There's an ideal, right, that all religions are equal and we can all practice and um, experience them freely, um, right? That's the ideal, right? The ideal is that which religious background you come from shouldn't make theoretically a difference in how you are treated um, politically, economically, socially, right? That there's this ideal that and the ideal that there will be no um, um, difficulties in you being able to practice it, right? Um, so that there, you know, everyone should be able to practice their religion without um, undue um, duress from the government is my understanding of it. Um, and while we strive for that, it is very clear that um, not exactly the case. So I'll use a completely minor, minor, minor example, right? Minor, but it's part of these little things, right? So the Jewish um, high holidays just finished and Yom Kippur was on a Monday, right? So many school districts say in New York City maybe can close, right? So in places that have a large Jewish population, they will maybe close. Um, for those of us who live in places where they're open, right? You have to hope and uh, 
thoughts and prayers that your um, that your um, city um, uh, school um, school board cares enough to mention it, or that the um, head school administrators note to the teachers that you may have children missing class that day. But um, the bottom line is most of them don't. Um, and most of them say, oh yeah, we're not gonna have any major tests, but they keep teaching. And if your kid misses, then they're significantly behind. So the reality is that most Jewish kids, especially in high school, right, which is when your grades matter to get into college, have to make a decision, right? Am I gonna be Jewish today before I am um, a student in my high school? Or am I gonna have to forgo that for these few years because I need to get into college, right? And so on paper, yeah, they can choose to not go to school. On paper, their teachers aren't supposed to teach major things and give exams, right? Um, and then there's the life that we live, right? Um, and a, a friend of mine who has a lot of Jewish friends, hangs out with, you know, some of her best friends are Jewish, made a comment because I had a work um, most of the weekend to be able to take Monday off. And she, it just her brain explodes. I just never thought about that, right? Because if you miss a day of work, you are totally and completely behind and you have to deal with that on a regular basis. Christians never have to deal with that, right? All of all the Christian holidays are holidays. So ramp that up with say a rising Muslim population during Ramadan in the summer when they're fasting um, in the summer and have to work right? Or their kids have are fasting and they have to go to school during the school year, right? And so yes, it's they're free to choose. Um, but oftentimes, there are really very difficult choices that still have to be made on a really fundamental, do I send my kid to school today? Or do I not? Right? Yep. Yep. Thanks, Tammy, for that. That example, uh, Rob or Roger, anything to, to add to this ideal of religious freedom before we move on? The only thing I'd add is, is the freedom includes both the profession and the practice, but it also includes the freedom to change religion or not to have any religion at all, too. And I think those are, are important protections as well, because sometimes um, religious freedoms too often will give people freedom to stay in their lane, but no one can change lanes. And that becomes, uh, in an international community in particular, that becomes a, a very problematic. That's beautiful. When I think about the ideal and the real, I think about uh, the um, the Jewish uh, congregation that is at uh, Tauro, who asked uh, George Washington, President George Washington, what's it going to be like to be uh, practicing Jews in America? And it's a famous letter. And, but the phrase that sticks out is, uh, we will give to bigotry no sanction. Okay, to bigotry no sanction is the ideal. How has that been experienced as the real? You might ask people practicing from the uh, Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, or uh, enslaved uh, African-Americans. How is that real freedom to practice? Well, freedom to live safely on a street, much less practice. So tracking the difference between the real and the ideal, it's like uh, Dr. Martin Luther King said, we're going to hold you to the words of your ideals. Uh, and so I think it's great to have an ideal. Um, and so you cannot celebrate how you always reach the ideal, but so you can catch the delta. What's the difference? Where are we short? Or the impossibility of reading it, uh, sorry, the impossibility of getting to that kind of freedom, ever arriving at a destination as uh, my uh, grad school colleague, uh, Winifred Sullivan, uh, Winnie Fowler Sullivan has written about the, the impossibility 
of reaching that. So as we work through the courts, as we work through each other in neighborhoods, we may never get to that place called the ideal. Uh, but how quickly can we move from the real toward the ideal, uh, as Tammy's already given us some real life suggestions? Great. Thanks, Rob. Okay, that was a fantastic discussion. Let's move on to the vision statement, and I'll read it here. The National Museum of American Religion will be the nationally recognized center for presenting, interpreting, and educating the public about the impact of America's fragile experiment with religious freedom on the United States and the lives of people who have made this country their home. It seeks to inspire civil dialogue and debates about this complex and moving story, while also challenging assumptions and understandings about religion's impact on history and contemporary life. Uh, Roger, Americans, I believe, uh, seem to value very much their history. Uh, why don't we already have such a center for presenting, interpreting, and educating the public about what religion has done uh, to America and what America has done to religion? Yeah, well, I'm not sure why we don't, <laughs> to be real honest. I can, I can say I think it's very much needed. You know, as I mentioned earlier, uh, in the area of education, um, it's it's a topic that's not covered much in public schools, so it's just a, a, a void in 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 especially in young adults trying to understand um, how, the history of American religion. When I first wrote the book Church of America, uh, as far as for people my generation, the book began is nostalgia is the enemy of history because many people had a very nostalgic view of what religion was in American history, and it was overly glamorized. Now, I think there's just more of a void there. So I think the museum is very much in need to, to present the um, significance of it, but just to fill that void, uh, to let people know what has occurred, um, how freedom has had an impact. Uh, and so I think that education is, is really important. I think the other part that we often don't appreciate, and I think this is true of every civil right, is how fragile it is. Um, you use the word fragile in that statement, and I think that's absolutely correct. Uh, after following 9-11, uh, when they were doing a series of surveys on would you support having people of other faith worship in the, the way they desire or something along that line, the, the rate of response or agreement with that was like, I forget exactly, something close to 80%, but it dropped by 15 percentage points after 9-11, where as far as the support for that statement. So we often forget how fragile it is, even with court cases we've seen over history as far as how court cases can have a great impact on the way future cases are decided. So there's a fragility there um, that, that makes it something we can't take for granted. And I think even in terms of being knowledgeable about it, um, we can't take that for granted either because uh, we've moved from being overly uh, idealistic in terms of what occurred to simply um, another cohort and generation not being aware of what has occurred in the case of, of religion and American religious history. Can I jump in there? Um, Thanks, Roger. I, I think yep. you are spot on. And I think um, I think if we've learned nothing in the last few years is how fragile many of our institutions are, um, especially the whole notion of civility. Um, but I think in terms of, I, I agree with you 100% about the education piece. And I think it's kind of interesting because in, um, in K through 12 education, um, I think people are afraid. It's interesting. They're afraid to talk about religion because they don't want to be perceived as teaching it, but they don't mind slipping in and, you know, like you're allowed to have Christmas parties and Santa Claus came to my daughter's school all the time. That wasn't religion. Um, and yet you couldn't talk about what 
are these notions, right? Because the um, the teachers in general aren't trained to, to do that. And they're sort of afraid to enter into a discourse that may be perceived as them taking a side, one side or another. And I think that's exacerbated by the fact that in this country in general, in even if a child is raised in a so-called religious family and they go uh, uh, to some kind of a school and are educated in their religious tradition, it usually ends around age 15, 16, if they go that far, right? Um, and it depends on the tradition, if there's a confirmation or whatever it is. Um, and then many of these people grow up and become adults and start thinking in um, and are trained either in jobs or in colleges and are educated as adults. Um, and their education continues in terms of, of history and some kind of a skill set for a job, but not about religion. So I think the average American, the, the well-educated Americans, even the well-educated religious ones, have sort of a 15-year-old's education on even what their own tradition is, right? And so then when you're trying to apply that to sort of the world and you have all of this, you know, oh, I understand government because I took gov in college, um, but you have a 15 year old's notion about what your own personal tradition is. And, you know, we all know that when we go home, right, for whatever our holiday is, we become like whatever age our family has decided to, to, to stick on us, you know, that's usually anywhere between two and like 12, right? Um, and so you kind of immediately revert to that even when you're celebrating your religious holidays as an adult, right? And so there's a, a bit of a disconnect about even what our own traditions are for those of us who are well-trained in it. So how much the more so um, in terms of trying to understand how other religions function, how they um, function within this, um, this sphere that um, we call freedom um, and in the American sort of um, social world. I resonate with that. Um, I think if something's intimate, like religion is, um, powerful, like religion can be, and sometimes perceived as dangerous, um, how do you make a museum out of that? How do you make an institute out of that? It's, it can be a tender thing. I think that's just the reason it's needed because when difficult things happen and texts need to be interpreted and people need to be understood, you need that. So intimate, powerful, and potentially explosive, I should say more than dangerous. Um, that's all the reason it's needed. The second thing I think of is that people practice their faith in specific, not in general. Um, from my tradition, we would say, I, I'm, not, I'm not religious, I just follow Jesus. But whether that's, your, whether that's your angle or whether you just, you know, I don't follow religion in general, in the same way that I don't love in general or eat food in general. Uh, there's not a food museum and a love museum. I think there are reasons for that. So you, you practiced in specific. And what, of course, we hope to do with the National Museum of American Religion is let the specific stories come together in the context of that. And my big metaphor for that really is what I call trees and fish. Uh, the trees may not be necessarily looking at the health of the ground from which they grow and the roots are all connected to the other trees. Let's say the trees are different faiths or, or whatnot to be simple about it. It's the healthy ground that doesn't get talked about. The trees aren't sitting there conversing. They're talking about their leaves, you know, or their branches or their bark. We have my bark. It's really the nourishing of the health of the ground. In a sense, this is the National Museum of American grounding. Uh, or for fish, you could uh, play that out as you can easily see where that goes. We're not discussing water. What's water? <laughs> What's the freedom to practice conscience and uh, and faith? I, I'm a fish. You're a beautiful clownfish. I'm a, a goldfish. Whatnot. I'm a barracuda shark. But um, 
you know, if that is such a thing, we don't talk about the water. So here we're talking about the water. So that's why it doesn't exist and, and, and really needs to. You need to talk about the health of the ground, the earth and the, and the water. And I'd like to just offer one other example with my students that I, I think makes it so compelling for me as well, too, is one of their, their favorite activities when I teach a sociology religion course is going out and visiting other religious worship services. And they all come back somewhat surprised. Well, first of all, some of them say, can you do that? You know, they didn't know they'd be allowed in. And so they're quite surprised by that. But then they come back and they have such very different reactions. Uh, so, you know, I had a Catholic who felt very much at home in a Jewish worship service, but he went to a Pentecostal service. He said it was entertaining, but it wasn't religion, you know. And so these all are these experiences, as I think Tammy was saying, we grow up in one tradition. And, and at most, we experience that tradition. Um, and many people grow up in no tradition. So I think this is a way to, to um, really open it up and do it in a way where there is a civil conversation occurring and an appreciation uh, for the different groups. And I think that is something that's, that's very much needed. Uh, thank you. Rob and others can join in here. Why does the museum call this uh, religious freedom, why does, it, why does it use the phrase an experiment and why is it fragile? What's the experiment that we're talking about and why is it fragile? I think we say experiment for a couple of reasons. Um, you need to keep trying experiments and it is an ongoing process. When you are reading um, uh, Abingdon Shemp, was it 63 or any other court case, they're still interpreting it. So it's an experiment. We're still trying things and we get things right uh, and we may have to move forward. Why it's fragile, you could stick with the uh, chemistry experiment, the fragility of things that are quite, again, quite uh, powerful. Um, that's power, power has uh, its other side of, of fragility. I think sometimes of um, uh, Harvard uh, professor Christopher Stendhal's three uh, rules for studying religion, and this would get to why it's fragile. The first is you have to let participants to be able to tell their story, not just other people telling the story of a particular faith. The second rule is you're not allowed to compare your best part of your faith with the worst of theirs. Um, that's, that's fragile. When you ask me to talk about the difficulties of, of white Christian Protestant fundamentalist America, I a tender spot for me. I want to bring out my best and, and I'm not going to compare my violent uh, side with your, uh, with your good side. And the, the third rule is have a little bit of holy envy. Uh, be allowed to appreciate other things. And it's fragile because I can look at another family and say, I like that family down the road. You know, the Ramirez family, they got it going on. They take good vacations, they pray together, you know, or I look at my, my neighbor, Mohammed Medjid, uh, the head of the uh, Adam Center, the Al Dallas uh, area, Muslim Center in the area. And I have holy envy for uh, how he raises, uh, he and his wife, uh, Mara, raise their daughters. So how do you have holy envy? Well, if you're going to have envy for something, that's a bit fragile. So experimental and fragile. I think we're just trying to be humble uh, as we head into this museum about um, it's not some kind of set triumphalist deal. We declare this is how freedom happened. America did it right. And off we go to, to share that with others. It's quite fragile. It's very much an experiment. Let's move on to the value proposition. Uh, the National Museum of American Religion invites all people to be inspired by the Constitution's bold commitment to the ideal of religious freedom and to be moved to seek its preservation for future generations. So 
I, I'd like to ask all three of you uh, this question. So religious freedom um, is very, very polarized right now. Um, perhaps it's always been, uh, and we'd have to look at the historical record. It's got quite a history, a very complex, uh, nuanced history. But let's just look at 2020. Uh, the museum is trying to be birthed, right? And here we are in a very, very challenging situation with religious freedom sort of in two warring camps. Um, how, how will the museum not get tainted by the warring camps? How will the museum exist? How can it actually be successfully birthed in a place where religious freedom is, is just so fraught? Um, takes so. a couple of steps. One, it's who you bring on your board. And so we made sure the ACLU and the Beckett Fund come on at the same time. We have uh, right, left, of people who refuse to be put into those categories. It's the people. The second is you acknowledge that a place of the museum can have displays about those two versions or 15 versions of it. So you welcome that. And the, the third way you, you try to do it is you have a difficult topic and you lift it up and you create a seminar on it. Nothing better than the, um, the strategic paper or the panel to reveal, oh my, this is much more complicated. And um, in some ways you want to simplify the complex and complexify the simple. That's kind of a, a shtick in academe we have, but museums can do that as well. Oh my goodness, that's so straightforward. I never saw it that way. And oh my goodness, um, there's no way they'll ever figure that out. And we'll be a platform for that. It's my yeah. quick answer. Yeah, and, and one of the things um, with the, the archive I run, which is run at a state university, but is uh, one of the goals is to simply present the best evidence out there. Um, so we work with a lot of survey data. We work with a lot of census data by different countries. We work with data collections that have been collected by people in political science and psychology, by sociology. So we just try to work with the very best evidence we can, uh, present it, have it out there, and I think that alone helps inform the public so much better uh, when you can try to present the most accurate, the best evidence we have. And I think one of the things that the board is doing uh, well here is bringing people in from whatever, right, left, whatever dimensions you want to put it on, any continuum. And I think that way you get representation and you can really make sure that you are uh, giving an honest impression of what how religion has has operated in the united states and throughout american history and i think that that's what what is often missing in these discussions um because you're always trying to support one point or another point or one view or a different view but what's often missing is just the the accurate and honest evidence that people are often looking for and i think you know two of the values that we're on here too are inquisitive and interactive and i think the museum can offer the safe space to really inquire uh, to interact with different exhibits. Um, and, and it's, you know, too often um, when you go to inquire or interact, you hit the different polar positions. And here, I think it becomes a, it is a much safer space, I think. So I like that a place you can go where those questions you always wanted to ask. Yeah. Get your hand slapped. You will not get your hand slapped at the National Museum of American Religion. I also wanted to briefly comment on something um, Roger was noting, just putting this, this things out there. There's a phrase that we have uh, as historians, as, as all of you probably know, vs. eigenliche Wesen, which is how things actually were. A great book, uh, Peter Novick, That Noble Dream, talks about the objectivity problem. But let's just say we're trying our best to 
to share what we believe um, what, it, how, what actually happened. And we all know there are lenses, sometimes bottle thickness lenses uh, that you can get things wrong and they're reinterpreted. But in a sense, we're open at the National Museum of American Religion to that contested nature, the nature in which you say, oh, I think this is how it actually happened. This is what we used to think actually happened. Here are things we've been informed by. Tell us how you've actually interpreted them. Um, that's our best shot. And to a comment Tammy was making, um, for some people in America, some groups, it's not about cheeseburger hamburger. They think that cheeseburger will kill me if I eat it. And so it ups the ranks. I agree with everything Tammy said. And then I grew up in a neighborhood in a, in a, in a, uh, a Christian group where, oh yeah, we get that. That's preference. But what if we believe everyone else's cheeseburger is actually harming our children when they, when they devour it? So you go from preference to where my nose ends, you, you know, your rights begin. The museum can cover all of those things. The beauty that Tammy was talking about, the evidence that uh, Roger was talking about. Uh, it can be that kind of place because it's an interactive, it's not your uh, uh, grand, grandmother or grandfather's museum. It's got that interactive uh, ability to it. How, how difficult, what are the difficulties presented to the museum concept by this growing group of, um, you know, secular, this growing secular groups, including, you know, uh, real suspicion of institutional religion, uh, I'm spiritual but not religious, the nuns. Uh, what, what's, this, what's this going to, how is this going to challenge the museum concept from being successful? I'll go last on this one. <laughs> I don't think it's a challenge at all. I think that, um, you know, for somebody who is spiritual but not religious, right, they're going to want to go to say, oh, well, see, this is why I'm not, right? And they may find that or they may, right, it might be, um, proven to them and they leave going, oh, yay, I'm glad I'm a nunner, right? Um, or they may go and see, oh, you know what, that's not so bad, right? Or, oh, maybe I actually want to become that. You know, I mean, the possibilities are endless, but I don't think, I, I think I, I, one of the issues, right, is that um, when no one is educated about religion, so if you're raised in a secular family and you're not sent to any kind of religious school and no one talks about religion in school, um, then you don't know what it is, right? Um, and so this is an opportunity to sort of be educated as an adult um, with in, in a non-scary way um, and to actually gain some insight about folks who are, right? And so I actually think it might be more interesting to them because they have nothing to lose by going to it, right? Um, I think the harder lift is for people who are um, possibly um, the fragile, right? How, um, how, how nervous are you um, about the, um, the usefulness of your religion, dare I say, right? You know, if you're afraid that its basis is, is hesitant, then you're gonna be afraid to go learn about somebody else. But if you're confident in who and what you are and what your religious tradition is, then go and learn about something else. It's not, the, the, the point of this museum is not to convert anybody, right? It's not a how-to, it's an about. Um, and I think that that makes it actually intriguing for everybody. Thanks, Tammy. I, I, I agree, I think it will be of interest, both of interest substantively 
because uh, again, we have atheist groups, others that, that link to our website and they're very interested in what the data are on religion. Uh, but I think the other part and far more important, or for me anyway, is that their freedoms are, the, are rely on this freedom. Um, so as far as to, uh, you have to be freedom to believe or not believe. You have to be able to free to profess or profess, uh, not profess. So I think that it's important, especially when you see it in the historical context, that was quite a radical notion to think about that you could just say that people could not believe at all, or that you could have atheists that really are, are uh, good citizens uh, was, was quite a radical notion. But even today, um, realize that the, the right uh, to clearly profess your religion is closely linked as far as, uh, as far as freedom of speech. The right to practice is very closely linked with uh, being the freedom to assemble. So these things are closely interwoven with other freedoms and to somehow feel that people who aren't religious, it won't be relevant to them. I think it's just as relevant to them as it would be for the religious person. I like that. I, I, I'm reminded that the opposite of love is not hate, it's apathy. And so my concern isn't so much um, my old crowd, fundamentalist Christians or fundamentalist of anything, uh, or secular, not interested or hating. It's that middle of completely uninterested. I'm not sure that middle is very large, but I don't have any concerns about um, secular or fundamentalist. I, I think Tammy's right. Once you finish walking through this museum, you'll either say, oh, my goodness, if you're a person who you know, likes the label secular and takes it on uh, and says, oh, my gosh, this country's dripping in it. Say, OK, yeah. And, and um, my hometown crowd walks through it and says, oh, my gosh, Jesus needs to save all the rest of these people. That's OK. We're learning about our neighbor. You want to you want to learn about your neighbors so you can convert them or learn about your neighbors so you don't uh, find them as disgusting as you naturally would. Well, whatever it is. And then, of course, there are folks who who fall into the that's fascinating. I had no idea that my Jewish friends they had no rabbis for the first couple hundred years of their time in America. Oh my goodness, that's wild. It made me rethink um, the experience of my Jewish friends after I, I learned that. So one, one little fact you learn, you learn that Billy Graham refused in the South in the 1950s to do uh, his uh, crusades if they weren't integrated. Oh my gosh, I can't believe. So just those moments or you know, that the, uh, any, any, any number of things that you could all learn and that Roger and Tammy could teach us because they're professors. Um, I think that curiosity is, it's going to be wild, especially because Enmar doesn't have some kind of, a kind of secret angle, you know, really we're the such and such group pretending to share the National Museum of American Religion. Oh no, it's all of us together. Um, not stripped bare, but certainly transparent, trying to figure out um, what happened. How does one live together? How do we celebrate this? And how do we try to get better towards the uh, ideal and learn a few things along the way? Last question for each of you. Um, what is the risk uh, of not having the museum in the public square? Well, I mean, I'll say uh, one of the things we find when we do international research or international research on religion is in areas where there's less freedom. Uh, that's also where there's tends to be higher levels of religious violence uh, because um, you're always gonna have some group that feels oppressed or has been treated unfairly. Um, to what we talked about earlier, uh, one of the things when I was doing research on Azerbaijan 
and uh, Armenia, which is now in a major conflict, is that um, people who actually uh, knew each other uh, from, from the other religion and from the other ethnic group were more likely to do business with each other, were more likely to uh, not object someone from their group marrying someone uh, from the other group. So I think um, having both the, the information and some form of even if it's indirect contact um, and seeing the importance of, of freedom as far as for all people and that your freedoms are my freedoms, I think all of those things can diffuse some of the very things we fear the most about religion. Um, you know, as, as Rob said, it's, it's powerful, it's institutionalized. So religion has all these ways that they threaten some states, but at the same time, if you allow these things to go out, get out of hand uh, and you try to suppress them by just denying freedoms, uh, it, 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 just the opposite will occur. Um, it's a really, it's a, it's a great question, by the way. Um, the, um, uh, and I'm glad I'm, I didn't lead the conversation. So thank you for going first. Um, I think, um, you know, it's, it's interesting the kinds of museums that we've had in the past and the role of museums in the past and the role that they play now. So this semester, I'm actually teaching the Bible in the museum, looking at how the Bible is expressed through art manuscripts and as artifacts in the museum space. And one of the clear issues that we've sort of found thus far is that most museums treat the Bible not as a religious artifact. So if it's a, regardless of what the art piece is and its original context, when it is shown in a museum, it's sort of decontextualized and you talk about the art, but you don't talk about the meaning of the object, right? And so all of a sudden, religion has been taken away in a lot of the museums because they're mostly art museums from the actual piece and the, the point that it served and how art um, expressed religion, right? And so it, it, it's being divorced from all sorts of things um, in a number of different museums. It is also the case that the role of the museum has changed fairly radically in the last 30, 40 years. So it used to be that museums were about things and now they're about communities, right? And mission statements of museums have become more important and are they serving their community and how do they envision their community? And COVID has even changed that even further because how do you reach your community when you, you can't have people enter the space, right? And this fills this really important void which um, we've seen other museums um, fill. So um, Teddy's museum is technically called uh, National Museum of African-American History and Culture, is that the? That's right. I know it's not just his, but I wanted to get the name right, right? right? And you have the Native American Museum, right? And all of a sudden, the point of the museum is to lift up some of these really important groups or topics that traditionally have not um, been a focal point, or maybe they're like an exhibit way off in the corner, right? Um, and this brings attention to religion exists in America, whether we like it or not, whether you are religious, whether you're not, whether your religion is winning or not, whether you are a minority, whatever it is, it's out there, right? Um, and so to pretend that it's not there and not address the issues, and uh, again, the fact that we have freedom of religion in this country is something that we should be celebrating all the time, right? We may not always do it as well as some of us might like or not, but the fact that it is there on the books is really something that I think um, is cause for celebration and is cause for um, discussion um, and, um, and having not having a place where that is discussed 
I think um, means that we don't understand it. Um, and so I think it's, it's, it's hugely important right now for that to exist. Thanks, Tim. Love it. The, the things that come to mind are, are fourfold. One, imagine your life without the great museums that have moved you, whether I'm eight years old and, and looking up at the Spirit of St. Louis or uh, in Istanbul at the Museum of Innocence uh, based on or Orhan Pamuk's uh, book or um, the Louvre or just the towns in Winchester, the uh, museum in Winchester, Virginia, Abrams Delight and George Washington's uh, little area there in Winchester, Virginia, the Shenandoah Valley where I grew up. Uh, my life and the life, lives of those around me are just uh, not better without those. And so imagine this museum in that context. I also think of, uh, um, well, just imagine without the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. You want to, you want to have a landscape, a uh, country without that? You don't. Yeah, you know, you, you keep going back to it. The second is the fragmentary nature of understanding uh, faith can be um, uh, easier done. So when the cake baking Supreme Court uh, ruling comes out and uh, my friends on one side are like, absolutely, you should be forced to bake a cake uh, for the gay couple. And I'm like, oh, so you want to be forced to bake a, you know, a pro-Nazi uh, poem? Uh, or what if you just want to sell all the baking goods in your, in your uh, bakery, but you refuse to uh, do something that's against your uh, your own personal beliefs. They say, oh, well, if it's a matter of creating art, then I guess I'm on the other side. I mean, uh, wait a minute, you mean I'm with all my conservative friends on this one? Oh, and again, that's just a small example of I'm confused about this cake baking and religion. Ah, here's some perspective. The NMAR could have had the top folks, scholars, activists, participants in there discussing it and then broadcast out social media. Oh, that's much better perspective. And it needs to be trusted, right? not left, not right, has to be deep, um, has to be trusted. The third is that perspective provides American flourishing. And I think Roger already covered that point beautifully. Um, and then the last one I think of is the international benefit. If we can model better what happens here in America, this is not an American triumphalist. I'm just saying when you know America uh, sneezes, others catch a cold. Uh, so not American triumphalism and look at us, but if we can get this right and better, we can be more comfortable uh, talking with our uh, international neighbors and partners, and there can be a benefit to them in the same way that if we get other things right. If you get internet freedom right, or do it poorly. If you get the military right, or do it poorly. Uh, you get race relations right, or you do it poorly. America sneezes, others catch a cold. How do we get this right? So I think those are the four benefits that, that jump to mind if we had it. I don't want to imagine it without it, but alas. Thank you. So we have been talking with Rob Wilson Black, CEO of Sojourners, Tammy Schneider, professor of religion at Claremont University, and Roger Finke, professor of sociology and religious studies at the Pennsylvania State University, about the National Museum of American Religion. The podcast series Religion in the American Experience is a project of the National Museum of American Religion. Episodes are released each Monday on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Register for notifications on our website, www.storyofamericanreligion.org, under the sign-up tab.